You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Robert Schneider, and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter 30, the 1981 production of Dreamgirls, and with us today is the author of that chapter, Tony-nominated librettist and lyricist Bill Russell. Mr. Russell is an internationally produced playwright, lyricist, and director who received Tony Award nominations for the book and lyrics of Sideshow. He co-authored the book and lyrics for Pageant and has directed that show in the Fringe and West End of London and many productions around America. He's also directed Elegies for Angels, Punks, and Raging Queens, for which he also wrote the book and lyrics, around the United States and in the Fringe and the West End. Other book and lyric credits include Unexpected Joy, The Last Smoker in America, Brave New World, and the Texas Chainsaw Musical. Bill, it is such an honor to have you with us today. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Bill, my first question for you is, is why is Dreamgirls a key musical? Dreamgirls is a key musical because it opened Broadway to a new sound and to uh, many people of color who went on to become major stars, though they were unknown when the show opened. Um, And I do think it ushered in uh, baby boomer music or or music that uh, appealed to baby boomers um, in a way that Broadway hadn't seen before. And when we gave you the list of possible shows that you could choose from, you uh, chose Dreamgirls. Why did you why did you want to tell this story? Well, I have a personal connection to the show. Um, When I first saw it um, in previews on Broadway, I was absolutely electrified by the show, but especially by Henry Krieger's music. And I immediately thought, oh, I just, I have to write with this, this guy. And um, I did go on to write five shows with him, or four shows with him, including Sideshow. But uh, that didn't happen immediately by any, any means. My husband uh, was a critic at the time that Dreamgirls opened, and he reviewed it. And 
he was often invited to these uh, special symposiums about the whatever show they were for. And they had the whole creative team of dream girls there at one of these luncheons he was invited to and I got to go and that was the first time I really saw Henry but then uh two years later I met him in a television studio in Los Angeles he was there for the um LA opening of dream girls and I was with a comedy team I directed and we talked for half an hour and it was it was fantastic um, and I kept thinking, God, I would love to write with him, but I didn't have any ideas at the time. And I, he was working with Tom Ian, who wrote the book and lyrics for Dream Girls. Um, and then 10 years after that or so, nine years, um, Bobby Longbottom and I uh, were talking about the Hilton sisters. He, we had had this, he had seen a movie they had done, a terrible movie, and, and he said, uh, we had discussed it for several years, but never gotten to it because we were doing pageant. And he said, uh, well, we should, we should do those twins, that twin musical, and who should we ask to write the score? And I immediately said, Henry. Um, and that launched us on our uh, collaboration. What is it about Henry Krieger's music that spoke to you when you first saw the show? Well, I my musical influences were much more rock and roll than than musical theater, really. And I always, um, when I did start writing musicals, I really was interested in writing rock musicals. I was inspired by Hair, and so Henry's music just—I mean—it had such energy and such drive, and that's what really appealed to me about writing with him. And. What impact did Dreamgirls have on you that in terms of its construction or in terms of its performance style that you still take with you today when you're crafting a musical, whether it's with Henry or with somebody else? Well, it had a fluidity. I mean, it, it, the um, staging was often called cinematic, Michael Bennett's staging, because he did use a lot of um, techniques that really came from film. There's this wonderful moment in act two where Effie um, is making, she's the lead character in Dream Girl. She's making her comeback and the spotlight came in on her. She, uh, she's trying out in a nightclub and the spotlight came in just on her face and then it pulled out and she was in a completely different costume and dressed for performance. And it was like a close-up in a film and then a zoom back created on stage, which is uh, not easy to do. Also, the whole production danced. Even, even the set and lights really danced. Everything moved. Robin Wagner, uh, who also uh, designed Sideshow, and I got to know after, after Dreamgirls, but had a lot of questions about it with him, um, had designed these lighting towers that were the basic set and these lighting bridges which lowered and, and rose. And um, it was just in constant motion. The towers all moved, the lights moved. Um, that kind of dynamic is very exciting. It's very visceral on stage. And 
could you define for us a little bit what exactly is the baby boomer generation of which you are so proudly a part of and what music did your generation listen to that was popular at the time some examples well baby boomers are generally defined as being born after world war ii 46 to say 64 and um well you know hit songs uh, so many big hits for for my generation came out of motown which is what dream girls really uh, tapped into and uh that was thrilling to audiences i mean there had been ain't misbehaving which was fats waller which was really an er- um earlier era of of music but it did uh it was a big hit one best musical uh it brought that music to a much wider audience because it was such so commercially successful and dream girls just upped that even further i mean it really um henry has a great ear and a great um sense of he loved that music he 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 grew up with it you know i grew up in the black hills of south dakota where which was not a theatrical hotbed and not where motown was played on the radio a lot but even so i was still really inspired by by those songs and i think audiences that kind of rhythm and blues beat was something that my generation was very familiar with How did Henry Krieger and Tom Ian meet one another and start this collaboration? Well, Tom had uh, a show playing off Broadway called The Dirtiest Show in Town. And Henry um, was doing some press for it. That's how they met. And then uh, Tom wanted to turn that into a musical called The Dirtiest Musical in Town. And uh, it didn't happen immediately, but... Uh, at one point, he called Henry and said, can we just uh, spend an afternoon together and see if, if we can write together? And um, they did. And that worked out. And Tom was already thinking about a musical about backup singers, especially uh, Motown, you know, that whole era, the Ronettes, the Shirelles, and of course the supremes which you know many people say dream girls is uh based on i don't know so much based on it's certainly inspired by them tom ian is one of these individuals that like such a long list of other individuals that we lost too soon he he passed away of uh aids at the age of 50 uh did you ever have the chance to meet tom ian um or uh, if not, what are the contributions that Tom Ian made in his short time on this earth to musical theater that you might still see being used today? My very first Broadway experience, which never made it to Broadway, but I, I worked on this musical Brainchild, uh, which had a score by uh, Michelle Legrand and Hal David. And there was a stage manager on that who was really good friends with Tom Ian, but I don't think I ever met him. And of course, by the time I started writing with Henry, he had he had passed away. Um, I think, well, his, his contributions, certainly with Dream Girls, um, there was a kind of storytelling. I mean, they, they much of Dream Girls was sung. And Henry is so good at making um, Rosette sound like conversation. He really, 
and can do that so well. And we, much of Sideshow, especially the initial uh, versions of it were sung through and um, we, we played with that a lot. And I think Michael, uh, well, Tom Iron with Michael Bennett found a fluidity as I spoke about earlier. Um, somebody has said that musicals are all about the transitions. You know, if you can nail the transitions, the musical will work. And that show, the transitions were just absolutely seamless. You were never aware of them because it was always constantly in motion. And, you know, when you were doing your research for this chapter, was there anything that you came across that surprised you that even you were, did not, did not know? Oh yeah, some of the uh, the last minute changes they made. I mean, um, because they they had done several workshops. A workshop is um, when a show is put on its feet, uh, usually in a, a rehearsal studio often fully staged and choreographed, but without costumes or sets or lights. And uh, it gives you, well, because taking a show out of town, which was the standard way to develop a musical for many decades, became prohibitively expensive. And so Michael Bennett with the chorus line developed the workshop idea of just working on the material and then, and I think it's it's actually a brilliant way to do um, to develop a musical because there are so many parts involved, and uh, I find as a writer just hearing my stuff is so helpful. So we often do a number of readings, and then we'll do a a workshop. Ultimately, they're not cheap, and <laughs> you know, but they are very helpful. And um, so they had done a number of those. Then they took it to Boston. And it actually opened in October of 1981 in Boston. Um, and it opened on Broadway two months later in December. So, I mean, that never happens, first of all. Yeah. You know, it, it was a miracle that they could get a theater, for one thing. It was easier back then before <laughs> all the mega hits started running for 30 years, you know, and tying up all the theaters. And it was a Schubert house and they were in a Schubert house in Boston. So they they came in right away. But they added, um, well, they replaced um, Effie's uh, song One One Night Only. And I forget what the other one was called. But um, I was surprised by that also. They brought in Harold Wheeler, a brilliant, brilliant orchestrator who I'm happy to say I've worked with three times on, on shows with Henry. Um, and he's African-American and he absolutely understood this music, Henry's music. And uh, they brought him in. That was that was late in the process also. Um, so things like that kind of surprised me. I really didn't didn't know. By moving to Harold Wheeler, did somehow the orchestrations become more authentic? I think they did, yes, yes, because he really knew that that musical genre, those genres. I mean, he's multi-talented in all sorts of genres, but, you know, he told me once he started uh, when he was 14 playing trumpets in strip clubs and his in St. Louis and his father would take him to work, drop him off and then come pick him up, you know, late early in the morning uh, after his gig. So he he really um, 
understood that that kind of music. Can you give us a little bit of the cultural impact that Motown had on popular music of the time? Well, it was huge. I mean, uh, the um, the music industry uh, was divided into black music and white music for for decades, and there was a, a whole you know record industry and touring. Uh, aimed at black audiences but there was very little crossover and of course elvis synthesized that he he took the black sound and 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 sold it to white america basically um and motown then happened around that the height of motown happened around that time and i think um because of Elvis, white audiences' ears became more attuned to that sound, and they started discovering all these authentic Black artists. Um, so I think that's kind of what happened. Would you walk us through a little bit of, if you know how Dreamgirls changed from its original workshop process, of which there was many. It wasn't just one workshop, right? Oh, and off we went. Not at all. Not it at seemed all. like there was quite a bunch. How it changed from those first couple of workshops to eventually what audiences got to see in December of 81. Um, well, I think when it started, they, uh, you know, Tom had always wanted to write about backup singers. Uh, and I'm not sure how much of a, uh, how many, how much of a script there even was for that first workshop. I think they just, he had the opportunity, um, uh, Joe Papp at the Public Theater gave them the workshop before they really had a, a show. So uh, there was a lot of stopping and starting and discoveries along the way. And um, eventually, I, I think the, the story became clearer. Uh, Effie, in the original version, the original workshop, disappeared at the end of Act One. She never came back. And in fact, Jennifer Holliday quit at one point because she didn't appear in Act Two. Um, and there was a lot of, I mean, they originally wrote it for Nell Carter who had been in the dirtiest musical in town and uh, they had written a song for her that stopped the show. And then she got a uh, television, well, she got a soap opera first and they were going to do another workshop and they didn't want to wait for her. Jennifer had made her uh, Broadway debut in your arms to short box with God uh, when she was 20 and uh, Michael well, I think they all went to see her in that and then invited her into the process. And um, she, you know, she was young and volatile and there were a lot of lot of issues, um, but they were really sold on her. But then she quit at one point and uh, Michael Bennett kind of wooed her back. It's so interesting because when you think of Dream Girls and you really think of Effie, it's so hard to separate it from Jennifer Holiday because it feels like the part was just custom made for her the way, you know, a perfect dress would be made. But to know that Nell Carter was the original inspiration, let's imagine that we had a time machine and you got to see Nell Carter. Could you imagine what you think Nell Carter would have brought to that role? Well, Nell had a very distinctive voice. I mean, the tone was just really like, couldn't mistake her for anyone else. Uh, I, I think 
dare I say, I think she was a better, more experienced actor. Jennifer came up through the church uh, and was a gospel singer. And I, I, didn't, I never saw Your Arms Too Short to Box with God, but I got the impression that she basically sang in that show. It wasn't like a huge acting performance. So I think uh, also Nell was a great comedian. Uh, which Jennifer is not. Um, so I think that would have brought a different color to, to Effie, you know. Now, can we talk a little bit about how Michael Bennett, the, you know, golden boy of Broadway at this point because of a chorus line, how did he get involved with this particular project? Uh, well, he... Let me see. Tom, Tom Iron knew Robin Wagner, who ended up designing the sets. Robin was on the board of the public theater. He brought it to um, Joe Pab, and also Robin had done the sets for a chorus line. So he was sort of the link, I think, that, that got Michael involved in this. What do you think appealed to Michael Bennett about this particular show? Oh, you know, Michael loved showbiz and, and this was, this had it all, the flash, the music. I mean, uh, in fact, his, his concept uh, for the show was that everything would take place in a showbiz context. There are no scenes, you know, I always felt in act two, it would have been great if um, Dina's mother uh, died and they all had to reconnect at her funeral mm. because they were all close to her but michael wanted everything in a showbiz context so everything's taking place on stages and dressing rooms exactly all it's all uh, yeah nightclubs it's all in the context of some kind of performance basically even though there are backstage scenes and you know but all in that world, we in that world, yeah. Right. And do I understand correctly that Tom Ian was supposed to direct it originally? Oh, he wanted to direct. He he was he was like the writer director. Then when Michael came in, uh, they were co-directing for a while, and they were at loggerheads a lot. Apparently, I mean, they were both fairly high-strung personalities, um, and then. At one point, I think Michael said, no, I want to direct this. Also, the money, of course, wanted to go with Michael I mean, because they were as these workshops developed, they brought in the Schubert's. They brought in David Geffen to see it. And they were all they were all like, well, Michael has to direct this. Michael was very involved at that point with chorus line productions around the world. Uh, and he brought in uh, a co-choreographer, Michael. Michael Phillips. Is that right? Uh, ooh, I is, have is it? Oh, I'll look for you. I think, is it Michael Peters? Michael Peters. That's it. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Brought in Michael Peters, who was African-American. And I think that uh, balance worked out really well. Have you heard any stories about what it was like to uh, work with Michael Bennett? Oh, yes. <laughs> would, would you? Well, would you share some? We've heard some others. So would you would you share what that experience was like? This 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 visionary individual. Well, he was he was visionary. Um, 
not particularly nice, I would say. <laughs> and he was driven. I mean, he just was a bulldozer that would sort of, you know, roll over anyone. Um, Henry liked working with him a lot, but other people did find him very difficult. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, and it's so ironic, is that he had such a cinematic eye when it came to directing, but yet he never directed any movies himself. No, just didn't happen. What do you think his film work would have been like had he lived long enough to achieve that? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I th- I can see because he did have such a cinematic sensibility. Um, I-, I could see him making that transition like Bob Fosse did. I mean, I-, I think he did have a very strong visual sense for one thing. I've always been surprised that he wasn't able to direct the chorus line movie or uh, I mean, it would yeah. have, been, have been a little different uh, or to to have brought dream girls to the screen, which eventually it came to. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Right. Uh, w- one of the things that you mentioned in your chapter, which is which I thought was such an interesting observation, was that there was an assistant insistence from the creative team that the uh, the ladies that are cast as the, the dreams are darker skinned african-american performers as opposed to lighter skinned african-american performers can you talk a little about that and why that occurred well tom Ion from the first was really set on that and i think that was really brave because the crossover of african-americans tended to be the, the lighter you were the more likely that was to happen and uh, uh, to be palatable to white audiences, supposedly, was the idea. Uh, but Tom really insisted on on casting darker women. Um, and that that was revolutionary. One of the in the in the past, you know, 40 years or so, musical theater rarely moves over into the pop charts. And I'm telling you, I'm not going is one of those rare occurrences. Can you tell us the origin story of, and I'm telling you I'm not going, because I had no idea this this was even a thing until I read your chapter. Right. Well, um, uh, Henry, I, I think Tom had written the lyric, and Henry was struggling with it a bit. And they were in um, 890 Broadway Studios, which was a building uh, near Union Square in New York City that Michael had purchased after the success of Chorus Line. And it was full of rehearsal studios and it was, he had his offices there, Robin Wagner had his office there. Uh, It was a real beehive of creativity. Um, And so Henry though, they they knew they wanted a song for Effie and he was having trouble with with it. He always writes from the lyric first or almost Mm -hmm. always. Uh, and he was in a, one of the rehearsal studios at 890 and Ray Stark, the movie producer, very successful. He had uh, done Funny Girl and many other major films, came into that studio and asked if he could use the phone. And Henry said, sure. And he was wheeling and dealing and, you know, making this Hollywood, this, these Hollywood calls. And he left and something about that just hearing all that really pushed henry and he just sat down and basically wrote the song and he shared a tape 
uh, with me of him teaching it to Jennifer Holiday for the first time. Oh, wow. Which is extraordinarily. Um, because, I, well, Henry doesn't read music. I mean, he's an ingenious composer, but he doesn't read music. And I'm not, I don't think maybe Jennifer does either. So they were just in the room and he would sing a phrase and then she would repeat it. And then they would go back and forth like that. It's really fascinating to hear it. It's all there. I mean, it's all there in that first rehearsal. That is incredible. Oh, to get my hands on that tape, I would be such a happy person. Okay, now, I'll send it to you. I oh my gosh. Okay, thank you, Bill. I'll sure. Listeners, I'll let you know how it turns out. Um, <laughs> Now, one of the things I found so interesting in your chapter was that, you know, you said that there was a $3.5 million budget for this particular production, making it the most expensive musical to that date. But what's interesting, at least because I never saw the original production, when I look at photographs from the original production, it seems like it's just an empty stage with scaffolding. So I'm curious, where did all that money go? Well, <laughs> you know, it looks empty, but... Yeah. Or, or it might look empty in the pictures, but the, the, it was a technological breakthrough, that set and lights, because it moved everywhere. So those lights were all remotely controlled, which I don't think had happened at that point a lot. Um, and as I said, they danced, the towers danced, the, light danced, the lights danced, and then there were these bridges which came down um, that people could stand on, but they had the lights underneath them. Um, and it was, it was stunning to, to watch. Also the costumes, I mean, were very expensive. Um, it, it, you could see the money on stage. <laughs> Let's just, got it, got it, got it, got it. Unlike Chorus Line, which was very, very sparse, you know, there basically it was an empty stage with a white line. Yes. Uh, yeah. So that's, yeah. that's fascinating because there are some people who look at that, you know, those are that original production. You go, where, where, where's the set? But for those of us who've never seen it, we've heard about the towers that danced and the lighting that danced. And, right. I think, you know, I know the famous effect of, like you were saying, of Jennifer Holiday, where she was able to change costume without moving a muscle. Right. And I also heard there was a section where the three dreams are wearing one outfit. They walk through a mylar curtain and come right back again. And they're in a totally different outfit and wigs. Something along those lines. Oh, that, yeah, yeah. That the costume changes were just. Oh, they were remarkable. And the, the costumes were stunning. Um, and I remember a moment I where the dreams come out and there's this wall of lights behind them that was just like, whoa, you know, you just, it was showbiz pizzazz to the nth degree. Have you ever seen a production of Dream Girls that did not use Michael Bennett's staging? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, the, the West End production, that was not Michael's staging. Uh, the I, the Casey, most recent one? The most recent one. Casey Nicola, who directed that um, and choreographed it. I mean, he certainly uh, was inspired by Michael's production, but it was, it was rethought. And it still works, right? With, I mean, the show oh, is strong enough that you can have many abs different interpretations. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you're a musical theater aficionado, I would say that probably one of the most, uh, one of the things that'll encourage the most debate is best musical, 1982, nine versus dream uh, girls yes 
Can you talk a little bit about what was going on with this rivalry? Well, Michael Riedel, um, the columnist, theater columnist, uh, has written a wonderful book, Razzle Dazzle, about the history of the Schubert organization. And the key focus of that is the whole Dreamgirls 9 um, competition for best musical. Uh, there's a couple things that were going on underneath just the shows. One was that the Schuberts had torn down the Morasco and Helen Hayes theaters, and there was an outrage in the theater community about that. So we, uh, he, he posits that part of the reason Nine won Best Musical was a backlash against the Schuberts because uh, Nine was in a Nederlander theater. Mm. I mean, these are the things you don't think about when you see those awards, you know, but that also what's interesting about it is, uh, well, uh, we were at the uh, opening of Nine and, and I mean, it was, it was really inventive, um, but it was also very cold, I felt. And, um, but it opened, Dreamgirls opened in December and Nine opened the day that Tony eligibility for that season closed in May. And often shows that are closer to the actual Tony Awards win because people, you know, know them better or whatever. But I think there was all this, this underlying stuff about, about the Schuberts that really did hurt, um, hurt Dreamgirls, which ran twice as long as nine and, uh, you know, has uh, much bigger hits than nine did. So regardless of who tore down what theaters, you, you, you are happy. Are you not, would you like to have seen Dreamgirls win? Oh, absolutely. I yeah. think it absolutely deserved Best Musical. And Henry, uh, uh, well, I'm very prejudiced, but he deserved Best Score. Tom won for Best Book, but I think Henry and Tom should have won for Best Score. And Dreamgirls, like you were saying, has lived on. I mean, much, much longer than nine has uh, through its uh, it had a very long run. But then there was a very successful film adaptation in the early 2000s. I'm assuming you saw it. Oh, oh yes. I'm also connected to the film in a lot of ways because Bill Condon, who directed it, went on to direct uh, the revival of Sideshow. And uh, so I did go to the premiere. Uh, he had... Henry and I had a show, Lucky Duck, at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego in 2004. And he and Bill were already uh, working on the movie of Dreamgirls. And Bill came down to San Diego to see the show. And we went out to dinner and everything. So I, I had met him and then uh, was invited to a, um, a screening, actually, of the movie. And I, I was just blown away by it. I just thought, wow, you know, <laughs> incredible he he always loved the show and uh i thought he really really nailed it did you find it uh, more impactful on film than you did on stage or do you feel that both have things that make it impactful regardless of its medium i i thought both worked really well um i thought he was able to uh to really find 
cinematic language for it that, you know, really worked. It's often hard to do musicals on film, I think, because it's such a realistic me uh, medium. But um, he, he really brought it to life. And going back a little bit to, once again, musical theater controversies and debate, if, you know, 1982 isn't, isn't a big one, another big one would be, you know, why didn't they record the entire score of Follies? And why didn't they re record the entire score of Dreamgirls? Can you talk a little bit about the original cast recording of Dreamgirls that even though it went gold, was very different from what people were hearing in the theater? Right. Well, it's very expensive to do a two album set. This is back when it was, everything was vinyl. And well, actually CDs were just, just coming out then. But um, double CDs, double albums are expensive and they don't necessarily sell. So uh, David Geffen was a one of the original producers of Dreamgirls and it was his record label that recorded the original cast recording and it was just really an economic decision and a lot of fans were outraged because there's so much music in dream girls that's not on that album because so much of it was sung through um bill condon corrected that in the movie i mean that's that's got several releases of the whole movie score but the movie did cut some songs and um and trimmed uh, some of the reset. And uh, once again, listeners, if you've never seen the movie version of Dreamgirls, you should. It's probably one of the greatest movie musicals made in the past 30 years. Uh, it's it's yeah. done so brilliantly. Can you tell us a little bit about the show that uh, Henry Krieger followed Dreamgirls with? And that's the Tap Dance Kid, a musical that has sort of faded away over time. Right. I, I saw that. And um, and actually, it's going to be done uh, this season at Encores, the, um, the series in New York where they do script in hand uh, versions. They're usually much more elaborate than script in hand, but uh, of, of past musicals. So I'm looking forward to seeing it again because I don't remember it that well. But again, um, it was uh, it's about a. a upper middle-class black family, the father's a lawyer and the son, the young son wants to tap dance. Um, and, you know, it's great. It's, uh, Henry is so, um, has so many multiple musical worlds within him. Um, it's not like the dream girl score really, uh, but. And, and that one also, I think, covers in the black experience this idea of you know how can you pursue your dreams while not playing into a stereotype of a specific community because right. I, I and i think that's something that'll be really interesting to explore when it gets uh revisited like you said at encores in 2022 one of the things i found so fascinating about your chapter was when i was reading it i came across the show title big river and i thought to myself how does big river relate to dream girls and you pointed out uh, an interesting fact that I had no idea about. Can you talk a little bit about why Dreamgirls opened the door to Big River? Well, because, because Dreamgirls tapped into that baby boomer music, music that appealed to baby boomers, I think it, it made uh, 
producers think, oh, oh, we we need to get to that audience. And so Roger Miller, who was certainly had no relationship to Motown, uh, but was a very popular songwriter with the Baby Boomers, um, I think it was Rocco Landisman, the producer, who approached him about doing this version of Huckleberry Finn. And um, and that opened up, that, that was really pretty much one of the first um, instances after Dreamgirls of a pop composer writing a score for Broadway. And then that, that opened, then they did Buddy based on the Buddy Holly catalog. And that opened the door for all these uh, jukebox musicals where instead of going after the composers of pop hits, they just took the catalog and wrote shows around them. But, but Dreamgirls to Roger Miller to Elton John writing for the stage, um, all of that is a pretty interesting progression. And what do you think, uh, or, or have, what examples have you seen of a pop composer that can successfully transition to the world of musical theater composition? Um, well, Elton, Elton John certainly has done that in spades. Uh, I mean, Lion King, uh, you know, barely qualified for a best score nomination because much of the score had been written for the film, the animated film first, but they decided that over 50% of the Broadway show was original. So, so he was nominated. Um, so he's been very successful. Uh, Sarah Bareilles is having a great success with Waitress. Um, uh, many uh, pop stars have tried it and, and not succeeded, but others have. Um, so, but you feel that Elton John and Sarah Bareilles understand the theatricality that's needed in order to put a score across. I think they worked with people who understood. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm not sure how much they actually understood theater, but they were brought in and started working with people who really did. Mm. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've covered this a little bit, but I'll, I'll ask you again, which is what do you think the impact of Dreamgirls will be going forward now as, as we move into 2022 and we go forward, especially with, you know, so many discussions about uh, the BIPOC community and all, all of those, those issues that are going on. What do you, where do you think Dreamgirls stands in uh, the canon of musical theater? Well, I, I think it's, it's a classic and it's iconic and um, it opened the door for so many black performers. Um, and I think that it will continue to that. People keep playing Effie and winning awards. You know, Jennifer Hudson won, won the Oscar. Uh, Amber Riley won the Olivier Award. Uh, I, that role, roles like that are not going to disappear. And one of the things that it's, you know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because you'll know this better than I do, but the Dreamgirls itself is a, a musical about a, re- a realistic non-review contemporary music about the African-American experience. And we really had not had a lot of that prior, 
original, original. We had had Raisin, which was based on a Raisin in the Sun, but it seemed to be tons of reviews or fantasies like The Wiz. So this is one of the first Black musicals to be grounded in a reality. Is that correct? That's true, yes. A contemporary one, which like you were saying, opens the door to so many other wonderful things. Bill, it has been such a pleasure getting to talk to you today about this magnificent show. Um, I wish we had more time to talk about all the wonderful shows that that you've done, but they might <laughs> they might pop up in a future uh, edition of Fifty Key Musicals, so don't be all surprised. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, are are you work Are you working on anything right now? Uh, well, I'm working on some things, but not necessarily musicals. They right at the moment they take so long, and of course. The, the pandemic has just like, yeah. um, there, we had so many productions of Sideshow that were in rehearsal that, you know, had to be canceled because of the pandemic. So, um, and I, I direct quite a lot and I'm continuing to do that. Um, and I love that. In fact, I hope to be coming over to your neck of the woods uh, uh, for another production of Pageant. So, oh, that makes me so happy to hear. That makes me so happy to hear. It's such a wonderful show. Have it is such, such a joy. Friends, thank you so much for listening today. Please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting routelitch.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about Dreamgirls, please also review the links in the below description. I'm Robert Schneider, and thank you for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. Bye-bye. Life's not as bad as it may seem If you open your eyes to what's in front of you Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.